This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jenny. Hi, I'm Tamahome. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk new releases, recent arrivals. This is our last one before next year, by the way, I think. I think. Um, and so, uh, before we get into audiobooks, I wanted to talk about two stories I'm putting bounties on. That is, there's two stories that I need explained to me, because, uh, either one, one of them's a math one. I think it's a math one. The other one is more of a, I just don't get it, and there's some sort of symbology going on in there. So, if you can explain either of these stories to me, you'll get $10 via PayPal. But you have to explain it to my satisfaction. Um, which means, you know, uh, make it so that I understand why the story was written that way, what's going on in the symbology, or explain the key to unlocking the puzzle. So the first story is called The House. It, it's by Frederick Brown. It came out in uh, the 1960s in a magazine called Fantastic. It came out August 1960. I've got a link to it in the show notes. And um, it's a very mysterious story. It it certainly got some sort of math. I think certainly. <laughs> I'm certain now. It has some sort of math thing going on in it. It's also got a lot of um, illusions that obviously are designed to be subconsciously uh, obvious to some people. But I've I've scoured the magazines, letters columns. Nobody seems to have mentioned it, but it it does seem to have become popular in reprints uh, in foreign languages. So if anyone can explain this uh, three-page story to me, they will get $10 via PayPal and be considered smarter than me. So the second Actually, story I have a friend that's a math professor. I could try to give it to him. Well, go for it, because I, I think it's a, it's a puzzle. It's probably a joke, knowing Frederick Brown. Um, and I think, I think uh, it, it's, it's supposed to be a haunted house story. But it's obviously, you know, got su- such random things going on in it that, you know, there's like trails in dust and there's a, uh, I, I think it's like some sort of math equation because it's got random dates thrown in for no reason. And, uh, there's, there's a, a piece of paper that says, there's a sub rosa subdivision and, it's a piece of paper that says Garfinkel on it on one side, written in lead pencil. And it, that never is explained. And I'm like, this is obviously some sort of puzzle. And it's either too obvious for me or really not obvious at all. The other story is, I think, this easier of the two. If you happen to know about, um, I don't know, Druid mythology, it's called The Last Druid. It, it is also incredibly short. It's only four pages. Um and it's much simpler, I think. There's a couple of characters who are going into a maze or a labyrinth, and they kill each other. It sort of feels like it could be a uh, mythological reference to uh, some sort of other uh, document. It, c- it could be biblical in, in a way that i just not seeing. But there's something mysterious. Like, I don't understand why it was written and what the symbology means. There's a druid, there's a temple, there's uh, there's um, two guys who kill each other, and there's seven layers of 
of this labyrinth. So that one's probably easier to explain. If it's biblical, maybe uh, Luke Burge could uh, take a crack at it. I, if it is biblical, it's it's not you know the obvious you know Garden of Eden sort of thing. But uh, there is a woman who is a tree, so hmm. who knows? If you can explain it to me, ten dollars by a PayPal. Anybody in the world, first person, obviously, I can't pay it over and over again. And those are my two bounties. Sweet. Hmm. But uh, if you start reading that Frederick Brown story and you're obsessive like me, you will find yourself obsessed with it. So, um, getting past those two bounties, Jenny, you've compiled a beautiful list. Nicely formatted. With wonderful um, category names. Yes, based on negative feedback from not having categories before. (laughs) We love the categories. Yeah, so we have one book that I still wanted to talk about, even though technically it's a literary novel. That is Gravity's Rainbow. That's I kind think of fantastic, this is, though, isn't it? Yeah, there are some elements in there. I think this is its first time in audio, mm. um, wow. which is amazing because it's from like 1973. <laughs> uh, read by George Woodall, and it comes in at 37 and a half hours from Penguin Audio. Thought it'd be longer. A sprawling encyclopedic narrative and penetrating analysis of the impact of, techn- of technology on society make it an intellectual tour de force. Yeah, that description is, doesn't tell you what it's about at all. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> tell us much. But here's what I know is that this is the book that Jenny references in every uh, podcast she's on. I do. <laughs> you do. You talk about it all the time. It's a great book. I, I never, you know, before I heard you talking about it, I never really heard of it. It's a nineteen. It's a. It was a nominee for uh, the Nebula Award actually that year. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, that I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me. Have you read it, Paul? I tried it years ago. Maybe I was too young. I I just couldn't crack it and set it aside, and I've never tried it since. Offer ten dollars for uh, somebody to explain it to you. <laughs> oh God, ten dollars! I think it's worth more than ten dollars. It's worth than ten dollars. Explain well, gravity's rainbow. Well, Jenny, well, no, Jenny's read it's it. It's a big one. I can't explain it. On, people who do doctorates on Pinchon. Okay. I think it's like a it's like a companion book that explains everything. Yeah, I think it comes up so often because it's one of those cornerstones of postmodern lit. So it just encompasses everything that stands for and I haven't read enough of that so that's my go-to reference <laughs> yeah, I think it's like Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren it's like that book you always talk about that you don't know what it means but everybody seems to love it <laughs> but even after they've read it they say I don't know what it means but it was good well there's just so much there yeah like I know most people think of it as more of a maybe a wartime story but I really like the love story element of it so there's just there's something for everyone, and then the ending is really, the ending is the best part. But you have to get to it. <laughs> I mean, I read the beginning, and it was really cool how he, how deeply he describes like moving through a city and the way a rocket trail looks in the sky, and there's kind of a sense of wonder to it. But then it gets, uh, I just got overwhelmed that I didn't stick with it. But the funny thing is that those two elements are really really essential for the core of the book. And it's interesting that you remember them so well because they're important. Good. Mm-hmm. He did his job. George Goodell's a really good narrator. 
Yeah, I wonder how long that took him. <laughs> a couple days, at least. I wonder yeah. if he has, like, a secret key on it, what everything means, so he can read it. <laughs> well, he, he reads for a living, so he's kind of read a lot of books. He did Game uh, of Thrones, right? No, oh. that's um, that's uh, a couple different guys. Um, he's 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 a narrator from the time when uh, audiobooks were very rare. He's he was like uh, in the eighties. He started, I think. So we we've got some new category outside of the crossover literary fiction called <laughs> near future or present reality, and is the really and is this really science fiction? I can't tell. Also, for hybrid science fiction, fantasy, time travel, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> this is our grab bag category. Okay. And part of it is because without reading the book, sometimes the description doesn't give you enough of a hint for you to really know. So, uh, for instance, The Peripheral by William Gibson, read by Lorelai King uh, from Penguin Audio. I'll read this to you and you tell me what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> Where Flynn and her brother, Burton, live, jobs outside the drug business are rare. Fortunately, Burton has his veterans' benefits for neural damage he suffered from implants during his time in the USMC's elite haptic recon force. Then one night, Burton has to go out, but there's a job he's supposed to do, a job Flynn didn't know he had. Beta testing part of a new game, he tells her. The job seems to be simple. Work a perimeter around the image of a tower building. Little bug-like things turn up. He's supposed to get in their way, edge them back. That's all there is to it. He's offering Flynn a good price to take over for him. What she sees, though, isn't what Burton told her to expect. It might be a game, but it might also be murder. Uh-oh. Well, it's William Gibson. Does that, does that de facto make it science fiction because it's a Gibson novel? Well, I think that's what all of the publishers are assuming because it keeps being it keeps being categorized that way. But that description doesn't necessarily scream science fiction to me either. So I don't know. I, I've heard it's this return to science fiction, but maybe it's only half yeah, it and half science pretty, fiction. Sounds more science fictiony than the last few. But um, I'm just curious, like, what the hell is a haptic recon for? <laughs> haptics is like it's like um, it's it's like you know you have a haptic joystick. It, it like rumbles when you go over a rough surface or something like that in the game. Maybe it's like a virtual thing, like drones, and it's like feedback. Yeah, maybe. It is very techno thoroughly sounding like the hapton, haptic recon force. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you know haptic is it, 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 it like I, I imagine the soldiers they go in and they feel the buildings. Oh yeah, this is a really substantial building. It's not because recon is going in and visualize, right? Well, I think of haptic like when you touch your phone and then it kind of vibrates when you touch it. it gives like yeah, a that's, feedback. That's haptic feedback. Yeah, it, it's doing a little googling. Apparently, it does refer to user interfaces. So, so it's apparently some sort of virtual reality user interface. It sounds, mm. sounds oh, I'm a little. I read this already. It just, oh, just came, came out. Just came out like two, three days ago. I know. Yesterday. I know. Our, our our friend uh, Fred Kish probably will read it soon since he's a big fan of Gibson and likely pre-ordered this. But I have not because I haven't read any Gibson in a while. My interests have gone in different directions. Fourteen hours, so it's 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 more it's longer than than uh, some of his stuff. Yeah, um, I'm also curious about the title because um, the peripheral. It, it, 
it does sound like a Gibson title. You know, if you said, who wrote this book? And you give me a choice of three authors, I would have said. The, the true question that most people have been asking is, what color are the jeans? And how often are they mentioned? <laughs> Probably uh, khaki or... Oh, but in the last few, it's been black jeans. Okay. Like pattern so recognition. <laughs> a peripheral means like a mouse or a keyword, right? Like some kind of... Yeah. Device. Or, or like peripheral vision. I said like, That's oh. right. It's in the periphery, you know. Mm-hmm. So Double meaning. Yeah. Well, the, the, but it's, notice it's the peripheral also. The peripheral, yeah. As opposed to just peripheral. You don't really need to read this book. It's kind of peripheral. <laughs> <laughs> well, There's my review. Hey, sorry. Sorry, Mr. Gibson. So he actually wrote the intro to Dahlgren, and he said... It's very good, but I don't know what it means. Hey, Tam, um, the group I'm in that read yeah. uh, Infinite Jest together called the Misfit Readers. We're going to read Dahlgren starting in January. Nice. So I'm finally going to get to it. I, I can't wait for that review. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited and especially excited to read it with other people. It, it's got a lot of explicit sex. Sure, that helps. <laughs> it's like a lot of... It's Delaney. What did you expect? Yeah. But there's a lot of, like, mundane description in between. Should so be interesting. Got it. I'll give so, you $10 dollars if you tell me what There's <laughs> <laughs> so, more than that. You read it to me slowly. <laughs> um, for some reason, Brilliance Audio had a lot of... Um, kind of younger titles that fit into science fiction and fantasy. And so I've included them in our list. Um, Cause you know, there's a big market for, for YA science fiction fantasy. So uh, the next two are more about, I think time traveling or I couldn't really decide where they fit. So I threw them in here. Um, the first one is the fire seekers by Richard Farr read by Scott Merriman. And I don't have a length on here, I guess, but it's for grades seven to nine. And it says the time of our immortality is at hand, an undeciphered language in Crete, a rash of mysterious disappearances from Bolivia to Japan, an ancient warning at the ruins of Babel, and a new spiritual leader who claims that human history as we understand it is about to come to an end. 17-year-old Daniel Calder's world falls apart when a freak accident brings personal tragedy, and he discovers there's a link between the accident and a wildly successful new cult, the Seraphim. Catapulted into a violent struggle for humanity's past and future, he's not even sure who the enemy is or if he's battling a phantom that doesn't exist. But as Daniel puts his life on the line, he's forced to conclude that our very survival as a species will depend on who and what we choose to believe. Hmm. Sounded different. Yeah, sounds like uh, apocalyptic uh, uh, immortality is at hand. That's what the cult leader says before he gives you the juice full of poison. Yeah, and then the ruins of Babel are in there too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Uh, Bolivia, Japan, and Babel and Crete. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, looking looking at some of these reviews on Amazon, it sounds yeah antediluvian myths and stuff poking out out of the past mm-hmm. with with kids. It's like okay, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quite sure this quite works, but I I think that uh, I think I'd probably prefer to read that. Than, uh, than one with an adult, you know, adult, the, the kids have really, you know, they won't put up with a lot of draws, so 
The books tend to be shorter. Yeah, you, you, you get leaner and meaner books that way. That's mm-hmm. the point. They get really get into it pretty fast. And uh, so the next again. one is, uh, I, I guess it's by Rissa Walker. Yeah, somehow the name's flipped. And Kate Rudd is the narrator. It just came out October 21st. It's for grades 7 to 12 as opposed to the previous one, which is 7 to 9. Uh, hmm. So it's here's the summary. It's called Time's Edge. To stop her sadistic grandfather, Saul, and his band of time travelers from rewriting history, Kate must race to retrieve the Kronos key keys before they fall into the crisis's hands. And crisis to, oh, am I spelling? Yeah, I'm reading that, right? C-Y-R-I-S-T-S. Crisis. Cyrus. Cyrus. Cyrus? Maybe. There's only one R. <laughs> right, you're right. <laughs> Kyrists. What's a Kyrist? Uh, if she jumps back in time and pulls the wrong key, one that might tip off the Kyrists to her strategy, her whole plan could come crashing down, jeopardizing the future of millions of innocent people. Gates' only ally is Kiernan, who also carries the time-traveling gene. But their growing bond threatens everything Kate is trying to rebuild with Trey, her boyfriend, who can't remember the relationship she can't forget. As evidence of Saul's twisted mind builds, Kate's missions become more complex, blurring the line between good and evil. Which of the people, well, which of the people Saul plans to sacrifice in the past can she and Kiernan save without risking their ultimate goal or their own lives? It's actually and this one. Actually, sorry, it's actually second in the series. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. so it sounds like it's right in the middle of stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, the first book is time bound. Okay. That that introduced that set used to set up and. Uh, since she goes back to 1893 and revolves around these Cyrus trying to establish themselves as a religion in history and change history and all that stuff. So hmm. apparently this carries that forward. Oh. Okay. I don't know how a time-traveling gene would work, but since time travel seems to be relatively inaccessible, I guess that's an easy what? way to get to it. Well, there's nothing wrong with time-traveling genes. I mean, consider the Charlie Strauss uh, Merchant Prince novels where you have a where you have a world-changing gene. Hmm. World-shifting gene, shifting between alternate worlds. So, Well, um... Not such out of the way. I, I haven't read those, so... You should. They're, they're being re-released as uh, omnibuses. Okay. If Yeah, as omnibus. I don't know if they're going to get into audio. There's audios. I'm, I'm for audio. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to get into audio. I would like that. That'd be good. I like Charlie Strauss. So I didn't right. mean to derail you by jumping. No, no. Jumping so up. I think I think that means you get to read the next one. <laughs> well, these I two have. go together. The next two go together. Oh, do they? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, then the next two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. City of Golden Shadow, Otherland, Book One, written by Tad Williams, narrated by George Newbern, and also River of Blue Fire, Otherland, Book Two. Two. Renee Sulayo, a teacher in the South Africa of tomorrow, realizes something is wrong on the network. Kids, including her brother Stephen, have logged into the net and cannot escape. Clues point to a mysterious golden city called Otherland, but investigators all end up dead. Oh, God. This is such a bad... Sorry. This is a bad summary of these books. Have I, any of you read these? No, but yeah. they're old. Yeah, and the, I, the previous summary didn't say anything about what it was about at all, but it's a cyberpunk, like, or cyberspace novel, right? I, I've, I've read all four of these. These from back in the 90s. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess cyberspace kind of, kind of the best way to do it because most of the action does take place in a virtual world, but this mm. paragraph does not 
do justice to what the novel's trying to do. You basically so have... please tell us more. <laughs> I will be happy to tell you more because these are some of my favorite novels. Um, ba- basically, they a large, a large, uh, in the, in the future, in the, in the descendant future of the internet, there's a whole bunch of walled gardens, other worlds, and a bunch of characters find themselves traveling through these worlds to try to find a mysterious one called Otherland, uh, which, where unknown shadowy figures are apparently moving against, bent against the world for purposes unknown. I'm not too happy with what some of the stuff that shows up in book four, but, I mean, I mean, Renee, Renee Solado is just one of the many characters who winds up traveling into these alternate worlds. You got all sorts of things like people getting into virtual reality tanks so they can spend more time in the other worlds. And there's, there's lots of beautiful detail on what these other worlds are like. There's, there's, there's some sequences. There's a, there's a Wizard of Oz one, which is a wonderful, wonderful sequence where they're running and trying to keep a Dorothy safe, which is, which is a, Amazingly good. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it, I guess you could call it post cyberpunk. I mean, there there's some stuff in the regular world, particularly in South Africa and in Australia, but most of the action takes place inside of the virtual reality worlds and what the, what these mysterious forces are up to. So it's uh, it's interesting that it was written in the '90s because the internet. I mean, we had it then, but yeah. the web was it, just booting up then. It, it's got a very um, You've read Verna Vinci's True Names, right? No, I've not. Mm-mm. Tim? No. Okay. Well, I was going to compare it to that as far as <laughs> the virtual reality is like, but you, that reference went all through over your head. It's, it's like one of those, it's, it's basically the internet as virtual reality world sort of feel to it rather than, rather than the text based and HTML and and web pages that we actually got. It's a, that, that sort of 90s vision of what the internet was going to turn out to be, or Neuromance for that matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, it's more like Second Life. Yeah, more like, se- well, not, 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 not even because it's a, it's a first person, it's a first person point of view for the most part. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's second, Second Life is third person, right? For the most part, yeah, I mean, you can switch to a first person. I haven't been in Second Life in several years, but, but yeah, so it's that, so it's that, First-person point of view sort of virtual reality experience that that the uh, the, this this I think it's 2040s that these novels are set that that the internet turns into. Yeah, and I've I've had this book. I like I have an ebook of it somewhere, and I haven't ever read it. So I was reading some more reviews of it, and a lot of people seem not to get it. I would say, and then. Um, it's probably people that were expecting it to be another fantasy novel because that's what Tad Williams is pretty well known for is more of the epic fantasy right. kind of thing. But it's not the only thing he writes. I mean, he's also written some urban fantasy too. And they kind of strike me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, as maybe a sci-fi setting but kind of still a fantasy novel. Once you, yeah, once you, get into, once you get into all these different worlds they're running through, the science fiction bleeds away and it feels much more fantastic but yeah. it is, but the, like like the books are like 800 pages each so yeah i noticed these are like 28 hours 24 hours <laughs> yeah so so, 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 so he, books. yes he he, he he and he goes deep on the detail and sometimes the pacing is a little slow it's one of those you really get immersed into these worlds hmm. and I, I like them a lot. I, I, I had read Memory Sorrow third years ago. When these came out, I was like, oh, virtual reality, I'll start reading this. And just 
blew through them back in the day. Yeah. I guess, and the way it sounds like the description works, it's not like they're they're going to be, you know, full of spinning icons and stuff. This is a uh, much more uh, future proof than I guess yeah. some other. Yeah, because you don't see you don't see that. Yeah, I mean, some of the tech of how they get into the virtual worlds feels a little clunky now, but once they're in there, they're basically wandering around. A fantasy world. They to plug the serial port into the back of their heads. <laughs> uh, well, they do have, some people do have to plug in, and there are some, I mean, there are some characters who are physically disabled, which, which makes these novels interesting to my friend Sarah Chorn, who's, who does that strange needs in special world, mm-hmm. worlds. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, it gets into those sorts of issues too, because one character in particular is very disabled in the real world, but in this, in this virtual world, he, he has full capability and he loves it. He doesn't want to leave because mm-hmm. he's much more capable here than in than in real life. Well, that's certainly true in Second Life. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I another review I came across was by Nnedi Okorafor, um, who of course is a writer from Nigeria, and yeah. she was even complimentary of how the South African characters were written. Um. You know, a lot of authors try and get it wrong, but she thought it was very well done, which was yeah. interesting. I've not, I've not read a single Tad Williams. What else has Tad Williams written? Um, most recently, he's been doing the Dirty Streets of Heaven novels, which are the urban fantasy that Jenny mentioned. That mm-hmm. starts, yeah, Dirty Streets of Heaven, um, um, Happy Hour in Hell, and the, the third one's coming out shortly. But that's not really what he's best known that's, for. No, no, no. Memory, the, the Memory Sorrow Thorn novels is what Tad Williams' bread and butter is. The, and also the Shadow March novels. I mean, big, mm. big fat epic fantasy. Mm. It's just you might prefer the, the, the newest ones because they're more like detective crime with right. angels. Kind of noirish. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, the first, uh, the first. Memory but he's a series guy, right? He doesn't oh, yeah. do lots of yeah, yeah, he, he likes to do his series and he, and he usually turns them out, uh, on, in pretty good order. I mean, Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the latest one are the latest ones standalone, the urban fantasy. They're not connected to his other universes, if that's what you mean. I mean, does one book continue to the next book? Yeah, or? yeah. Oh, okay. If if if, 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 if follow, it follows a mystery in the sequence. I think that's why I I've never read any Tad Williams. I've seen you know Tad Williams on the shelf, but I'm just not. I'm just not. I don't think I've ever really been a series guy. Um, Which is ironic, considering that most of this genre is. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But I, you know, I think that that makes sense. Um, you know, that's where the sales come from. So yeah, and you create a world, mm-hmm. and just wasting it on one novel seems, you know, <laughs> like a shame. Are there more? Are there more <laughs> series today than in the old days? I think there must be. Um, I mean. The, uh, the, there were, like, there were ones before Tolkien, right? But not, uh, they tended not to go, you know, six book series or ten book series. There was often what would happen is people would write a book and then it would be really popular and other people would write, uh, sequels, you know, like, uh, Robinson Crusoe 2, <laughs> you know, like that. Um, and often they were not, you know, they were like fan fiction versions of. Yeah, I wonder if this is a consequence of the 80s rise of epic fantasy, 70s and 80s rise of epic fantasy, just turning out the 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 the, 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 the Terry Brooks effect, basically. Mm-hmm. Just turn mm-hmm. it. So let's turn out another Shannara book. Let's turn out another Eddings book. 
to that. Yeah, well, the authors are writing to the market, and the market, I think, is, you know, I, I, I always think of it this way. It's just most people don't read anymore, so the readers who are left are their hardcore, dedicated readers, and they want to, that's how they get their regular jollies, you know, it's not by watching movies and, and TV shows with everybody else, but, but by reading hard, you know, reading a lot. And they do immerse themselves. It is, that's why they are 24 hours long. But notice there's no gravity's rainbow too. <laughs> Even though that one's 37 and a half hours. There's, literary fiction doesn't seem to do that, right? But people still look with um, interest to the next book that that author writes. That's true, yeah. And 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 that's sort of the way, I mean, I will read uh, mysteries by authors in series. That seems to... Is a Matthew uh, Scudder like a series? Yeah, it is. Uh, I haven't read all of them, but um, the ones I've read I've really enjoyed. Um, but I guess yeah. they're standalone. They are, and it, you know, there's something, there's some, you're not getting immersed in a world as much as, I mean, that goes with it, but it's not about, you know, living in that world. It's about figuring out something in mystery, right? It's like you're, you're going along with the detective, you're doing the detecting. You're outguessing the detective and, and getting, getting the mystery along with it. I don't know, that sounds like Ted Williams' latest series. Maybe you would like it. Uh, it's possible, but I have a feeling not. I have a feeling not. And, and, and that's like, you know, Asimov. Um, I really liked Asimov. I actually, I think I prefer his, his mystery novels to his, 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 uh, science fiction novels, but I love his science fiction short, short stories. So. And, and they, and they, and he all, he said a lot of the stories in the same world as did all of the authors, but those aren't, Generally, direct sequels are just part of that world. I mean, yeah. the future history is a pine But those are the ones I don't like, yeah. right? Don't <laughs> like those, of heaven. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's, another, that's another good example. We got stories and novels all set in the same common world with characters sometimes showing up again and again. Mm-hmm. Well, let's keep going. Let's I don't want to get stuck with Tad Williams. Um, tangents are our superpowers. <laughs> and why don't you do this next one? Uh-oh. Shouldn't anything. Ooh, outer <laughs> space. Okay. No, you have to read the whole category name first. Yes, yes. Well, I'm back from outer space. Is the category. There you go. <laughs> I'm I'm all in for this. Uh, the book of strange new things. Uh, Peter, devoted pastor, dedicated missionary, and loving husband to his wife Bea, or B, has just accepted a demanding and perilous new job. He's to travel to a new planet. All right, Oasis work for a mysterious corporation called the USIC. He's tasked with reaching out to the indigenous race to make sure they are as peaceful as they seem. Resolutely devout and strengthened by his letters from B at home, Peter undertakes his job with complete focus. The the Ocean's are shockingly open to his teachings, but things start to unravel when B's missives from Earth take a dark tone. Earth appears to be coming apart at the seams. Typhoons and earthquakes are devastating whole countries and governments are crumbling. Even the hospital where she works has ceased to function. Their unearthly divide is testing Peter and B's relationship to a startlingly degree. Peter is thrown into crisis. USIC might be hiding his true motives in developing Oasis and the 
Oasians. Yeah. Themselves are frustratingly opaque. It, all this more. B's desperate letters are only fomenting his doubt. Peter is suddenly faced with an impossible and dangerous decision. To follow his faith or to follow his heart. His life depends on it. I just heard about this book actually yesterday for the first time because NPR reviewed it. They were not they, they were not entirely impressed because mainly mainly because Michael Faber seems to be backpedaling away from the, the label of science fiction for this novel as best as it, as best as he can, and so it doesn't ah. feel very and it just doesn't feel very science fictiony or it's like very old science fiction. I mean they they compared it to. Uh, like golden age science fiction, as far as it's, uh, as far as it's. Uh, so what you're saying is, it's the book of strange old things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, when they were when they were viewing it, it sounded like, oh, this, oh, this is the sparrow all over again, kind of. Yeah, it sounds a little sparrowy. So, and this, the sparrow is a beautiful, lovely novel. I don't know if this 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 feels a lot more, uh, a lot more trying to. What, what, what more golden age stuff accreted on it rather than the lyric beauty of uh, Russell's writing? Well, it, uh, even that, that's not that old. It's from the 60s, I think. Or, the sp- yeah. yeah. Sparrow? It's not. No, the Sparrow's from the 90s. Yeah, okay, it's not that old, right? right. It's, it's, uh, so, uh, but this is the Protestant version. <laughs> I think the Sparrow's Catholic, right? Yes. So. This is the Protestant. This is the, this is the Protestant answer to the sparrow. Hmm. Yeah, James Blish has a really good novel that I, I can't Case remember. Case of the Conscience. Name. Yeah, Case yeah. of Conscience. Um, and that's um, uh, uh, that's sort of like <laughs> it feels like a uh, not that I've read the sparrow, but from what I read about the sparrow, it sounds like a sort of um, Robert J. Sawyer version of the sparrow. <laughs> you need to read the sparrow. The sparrow yeah. is an amazing novel. It's great. I hear it's great. Read it. Read it. Thank <laughs> well, you, Well, we'll have to put it on the schedule, Jen. <laughs> okay. Um, I was thinking of can- yeah. Canical for Leibowitz. Is that related? Well, uh, it, it, that's, that's on Earth. Yeah, that's that's, that's not meeting. Uh, that's not leaving Earth, though. No. Not okay. until the end, kind of sort of. There's, lots, there's a lot of nonsense with <laughs> spoiler. religious elements. It's on the spoiler horn. <laughs> Wait, but that's a different podcast. Awesome. Willful Child. I'm going to read this one because it's nice and short. Um, although I don't know how long the audiobook is. The uh, description's nice and short. It's Willful Child Bus by Stephen Erickson, read by McLeod Andrews. I think that's right, right? I haven't reversed those. Um, it came out. No, oh, it comes out November 4th, which is uh, very shortly. And it reads like this. These are the voyages of the starship ASF Willful Child. It's ongoing mission to seek out strange new worlds on which to paint the Terran flag, to subjugate and, if necessary, obliterate new life forms, and to boldly blow the dot, dot, dot. And so we join the not terribly bright but exceedingly cocksure Captain Hadrian Sawback and his motley crew on board the starship Willful Child for a series of devil-may-care, near-calamitous, and downright chaotic adventures through the, quote, infinite vastness of interstellar space. Uh, um, I... Got a review copy of this physical review copy. I read it. I hated it. Uh. I I I wrote I wrote one of my few outright and outright negative reviews on skippyandfancy.com of just why this novel is bad, horrible. Stay away. Do not do not listen to this. 
I mean, I mean, I, I have. But I like the description. It's Star Star Trek. It, 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 it's yeah. a Star Trek parody, but it's a it, it's a clumsy one. It's sexist. It's Uh-oh. badly oh. written. I mean, I mean, it it, it, it thinks it thinks it's funny. It sounds like it's snarky. Uh, it's snarky. It's not even snarky. It's just cruelly malicious. It's just it's like oh. Okay, we're going to test a warp drive engine here near Jupiter, Captain. That will that that will kill the the Neptunian life forms. Oh, oh, well, let's give it some fireworks to light off. I nearly threw the ball book against the wall right there. It's like this mm. is this is not. I mean, Captain Kirk wouldn't do that. No. I, I mean, it's just it, it's, it's a straw man Star Trek. It's a very straw man Star Trek. I mean, I mean, Captain Kirk is known as a Lothario on the series. That Hadrian is just. Clumsily sex, a clumsily sexist, sex and sex obsessed pig. Oh, it works on Futurama, right? They've got that uh, Captain Zap Brannigan. Um, I, 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 I probably, idiot, yeah, right? I could spend half an hour kvetching about this book, so I shouldn't. But I, well, I personally do not recommend know. this. Well, and the author usually writes epic fantasy, so do you think yes. he just was taking a break? <laughs> Well, I, I like yeah, his fantasy. Yeah, I've, I've read plenty. But that's the reason why I read this book. I'm like, oh, he's going to read it. He's going to write a space opera now. Okay, I'll give this a shot. Yeah, should not have tried. Mm. Yeah, imagine if Stephen Erickson wrote like a science fiction all by himself. I'm, I'm, but the, you don't see these problems of sexism and other things right. in his fantasy novels. I mean, he has strong, strong, interesting female characters throughout. Throughout the uh, the Malazan novels, here, not a one. They're all objects. Hmm. Yeah, his novels yeah. are very very deep, deep world building, right? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to try something different. But yeah, don't quit. Don't quit your day job, in my opinion. Sorry, I, I, I promise I'll keep talking. Here I am talking. No, no, I'm 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 always glad to hear a negative review. Yeah, it's one less so. book I have to yeah have to read. Um, I need someone else to do the next one so I can do Night Terrace. I can do it. I like Um, This is a new series. The first book, the series is called Lost Tales of Power, number one. Um, The Enemy of an Enemy by Vincent Tregilly, narrated by Jack DeGolia. Uh, it came out 3rd of October. And short little description, Fidor was on a fast track to the highest ranking position in the Imperial Navy's Securities Forces and was recently assigned to the senior staff of the flagship of the Navy, the Dragon Claw. All he wanted to do his entire life was to serve his god, the Emperor, and given his phenomenal performance during his training in the Naval Academy, it seemed he would be able to do just that. Sounds like nice short it's a, eight, so, eight hours. Sounds like it's missing something there. I mean, this sounds like, the, where's the twist in that paragraph, I wonder? I'm curious, okay, he's able to do just that, but where's the but? It's the, it's the book one, maybe, that is, is the reason for that. So book, it could be like, it could be like Horatio Hornblower, you know, how uh, it's just sort of a career. Oh, 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 no, reading, reading the scripture on Amazon, yeah, things go, yeah, th- things don't go nicely and smoothly for Vardor. 
Um, everything seemed to be going its way until the Dragon Claw and its massive command fleet was sent on a rather unusual assignment to investigate a minor incident deep within the Empire's space. That one event would start Vidor down a path filled with fantastically powerful enemies and extraordinary friends that would obliterate everything he ever said to be true and threaten the very foundations of the Empire itself. Now we're talking. Okay, yeah. there's the conflict. As I was thinking, where's the conflict in this description? There's the I think conflict. what happens is in Audible... They have the short description up at the top, and unless you click on that more, you don't get the mm. full thing. I must have copied yeah. the short one. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I mean, this paragraph here doesn't hook me. I mean, the other one, at least, you, okay, okay, there's something to hook onto and find out more about. Like, By the way, um, that's another good example. Uh, Hornblower, uh, Horatio Hornblower series started in '37 and went into the '60s. Yeah. And that is like eight or nine books, right? So that it's not like series didn't exist before the, you know, the seventies and Tolkien. That it's just that they were not sort of the predominant publishing mode. I don't think they would do like a series, like uh, a publisher would do a series of books by many different authors and sort of have similar looking art on the cover. So you, you get you get it that way, but that's that's a different thing. But yeah, that's why we have so many series now, I think. Said not every, there's more reading opportunities or more entertainment opportunities out there. So speaking of more entertainment opportunities, it looks like Scott's re- do, doing a review of this. Nightterrace.com or the Night Terrace audio drama at nightterrace.com. And it reads like this. Anastasia Black just wants a quiet life in retirement, so she's not exactly thrilled when her house spontaneously starts traveling in time and space. Yeah, or that she's stuck with Eddie Jones, who happened to be on her doorstep at the time. Together, they'll face alien invasions, hideous monsters, and a shadowy figure known only as Sue. That's S-U-E. Always wondering whether the house will ever bring them home. Time to Um, space. Yeah. So, so it's It's like... Doctor Who with old folks. Well, it's the current Doctor Who. Is it? Oh, he's, he's older not than that old. He's not that old. Um, I, I, I will totally try any audio drama. That's that's me. I will not totally try any novel. It's a new sci-fi comedy audio series. Mm-hmm. Looking at well, I I went to the website because you got you got, you got me curious. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, yeah. Me, from the makers of the hit Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps, oh, I, I've heard of those people, and writers from the ABC t- television series Outland and the Bizarro Project. So this sounds like a, so it's a, uh, so it must be Aussies then. Mm. Outland's a, an Australian thing as, as is Splendid Chaps. So these are Australians, yeah? Neat. Yeah. This looks interesting. I'm going to have to give I these a listen. a lot Australian audio drama, so that, that's, that should be interesting. Hmm. Why did the next two turn red, Jenny? Um, anything in red is not the first in a series, so I thought we could skip uh, it if you wanted to. Let's please skip uh, into Jenny's favorite. Oh, no. Dystopia, dystopia. Oh, I I think it's worth mentioning. John Swellpox, didn't he write something and then nobody guessed who he was? Yeah, John Swellpox wrote the books, and well, the first one's The Traveler. About a guy who successfully lives off the grid in a culture that's very on the grid. Mm-hmm. I love those books. And this is not related to those books, but it is his newest novel. It's called Spark, read by Scott Brick. Uh, so I'll just read some of this. 
This features an assassin narrator unlike anyone we've seen before, set in a present-day dystopia. Jacob Underwood is a contract employee of the Special Services Section, a shadow department in the faceless multinational corporation DBG. Jacob is not a businessman. He is a hired assassin, and his job is to neutralize problems deemed unacceptable by the corporation. Jacob is not like other employees, nor is he like other people, Suffering from Cotard syndrome, a real condition that causes people to believe they are dead, Jacob perceives himself as nothing but a shell with no emotion and no sense of right or wrong. Emily Buchanan is a bright young second-year associate for DBG, and she has disappeared without a trace. Suspecting she may have stolen valuable information and a fortune from the company, Miss Holquist, Jacob's handler at DBG, assigns him the task of tracking her down and neutralizing her. I think that's all already goes on. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, have you heard about this, this syndrome? It's really funny. Oh. I mean, it's not funny for the person, but the thing is, is they're not upset because they're dead. But um, it's real. It really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a brain condition, obviously. Um, but, um, there's a story that goes with it. Um, so the the guy with Cotard syndrome goes to the doctor. <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but or the doctor goes to the guy with Cotard syndrome, and um and the and the doctor says, uh, "Can you lift your right leg for me?" And he says, "No, I can't. I'm dead." <laughs> um, hmm. And he, then he puts his knee up on a you know thing, and then he, he gives him the little hammer to the the knee, and it, it makes his leg move. He says, "Huh? Yeah. Well, that's weird. Dead people shouldn't do that." Um. And and he says, well, let me ask you, the doctor says, let me ask you this. Do dead people bleed? And the patient says, no, of course not. They Their heart's not beating. And uh, and so the doctor, uh, you know, makes a little incision and little blood comes out. And then the patient says, huh, I guess dead people do bleed. <laughs> no matter what you say, you can't convince the person they're not dead. Yeah. It's just hilarious. Bizarre. I mean, now I'm Googling this. Like, huh. it's, it's, it, this is this is why brains are so interesting is because they control you and so even if you're confronted with evidence that shows that you know what your what your what your your worldview is is you can't defeat your brain because that's the thing you use to think with right although a diagnosis of Cotard syndrome does not require the patients having had hallucinations, the strong delusions of negation are comparable to delusions found in schizophrenic patients. Mm-hmm. Yikes. There's lots of similar ones, like um, there's there's ones where a patient will insist that somebody is not who they th- who they are. I've, um, I've so, heard that, or, or yeah. somebody else is like, you're not my wife. I've heard that syndrome. That's I don't right. remember it's it off Somehow she or he has been replaced by a double that looks exactly like them. Yeah. And and even though the you know that person can perfectly mimic the original, somehow um, there's just this knowledge built in that just says, absolutely, that is not the person who you used to know. It's not like he changed. <laughs> it's, it's all brain stuff. Yeah, so it's like as you said, it's just like the complexity of our brains. It's just amazing that you can have things go weirdly wrong like this. Yikes! Mm-hmm. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. <laughs> the funny part is that this guy has a job. He goes around. Well, yeah, I, it's I, I've got to go kill someone job. today. 
it's a good thing I'm dead. Otherwise, I'd be upset by that. And then and they said, well, I guess I've got to put some food in this dead body. Otherwise, it won't have the energy to go and kill somebody. <laughs> it makes no sense, but it's, it sounds like a built-in comedy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's not, I like how it's called a present hate dystopia as well. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, John Twelve Fox has even written a nonfiction work about the surveillance state, so it's mm-hmm. I imagine it has something to do with that. So so do we think he is a, a pseudonym for another writer or Nobody knows. Yeah, Corey Doctor Rowe. Ah. No. no. He doesn't info no. dump the way Corey does. I don't know, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I was curious about his what was his first book? The Traveler. The Traveler. Mm-hmm. I never read it, but I was curious about it. I, I was kept waiting for the name of the author to actually come out. Never did. <laughs> and it had a really great um, accompanying website. I don't know if it's still up or not, but it was fun to poke around on. So his publisher presumably knows who he is, so they can send him a paycheck. Yeah, there's a story there, though, about the P.O. box. and. <laughs> ah. Yep. Send cash. Yeah. It's fun. fun. John Twelpox is a pseudonym as his real identity is unknown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what do we know why that's his pseudonym? Why he picked that? Yeah. I don't um, know. Oh, at, oh, according to the uh, let's say, um, yeah, he has some weird description here. The real story is this: I was walking through a forest and encountered a hawk nesting area. Twelve hawks circled around my head for about ten minutes. So close that the tips of their wings brushed the side of my head. That's why I picked the name Real Hawks, not Symbolic Ones. Uh, That's at least according to Wikipedia. Okay. Maybe he thinks he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that would just be strange. Interesting. Okay, so the next book on the list... I I think we should go back to the red ones. You want to go back to the red ones? We can do that after this next one. Okay. This last one, the category. Um, we've mentioned it before, Chimpanzee by Darren Bradley. But what I said before is, I have a version of the audio play, but I don't know if it's going to come out. And I just wanted to say it actually did end up coming out. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what happened was, they tried to get an audio production made. They were told it couldn't be done. So they're like, well, we'll do it. And so they did it. <laughs> and then they sold it to Audible. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And I haven't, I'm really awful. I haven't listened to it yet. I just haven't had a lot of listening time. But I know the people on the recording. <laughs> you would think that would give me incentive. I don't know what's wrong well, with I want me. to use the description on this because uh, I like the first line. Yeah. Go well, ahead. not that I like it, but I think it's true. Are you you're going to read it, you said? Oh, I, I, I wanted you to read it to me. <laughs> but I guess I'll read it. Unemployment has ravaged the U.S. economy. People struggle everywhere, exhausted by the collapse that destroyed their lives. Benjamin Cade is an expert in cognition, and before the flatlined economy caught up to him, he earned his living as a university instructor. Now, without income, he joins the millions defaulting on their loans, in his case, the money he borrowed to finance his degrees. But there are consequences. Using advances in cognitive science and chemical therapy, Ben's debtors can reclaim their property, his education. The government calls the process repossession therapy. The data Ben's repossession will yield is invaluable to those improving the quote-unquote indexing technology, a remarkable medical advance that has enabled the effective cure of all mental disorders. By assembling his mind, 
Oh, sorry. Disassembling his mind, doctors will gain the expertise to assist untold millions. But Ben has no intention of losing his mind without a fight. So he begins teaching in the park, distributing his knowledge before it's gone in a race against ignorance. And somewhere in Ben's confusing takedown, Chimpanzee arrives. It's iconic. It's iconic. Iconography. 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 Oh, crap. Iconography appears spray-painted around town. Young people in rubber chimpanzee masks start massive protests. As Ben slowly loses himself, the chimpanzee movement seems to grow, and all fingers point to Ben. It makes me think that that an alternate uh, ending for the original Planet of the Apes is, is he says, damn you dirty apes, and then uh, the the costumed humans take off their masks. It's just cosplay. <laughs> well, um, this book is really terrifying for anyone who's worked in academia. So. <laughs> but I really think, you know, maybe John 12 Hawks and the character in this novel, Benjamin Cade should hang out. <laughs> Get together and go bowling. Yeah. <laughs> Mash up. Funny. Okay. Tam was like, to yours, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know I'm from, he used to work at my university. <laughs> Irony. So what are we looking at, Tim? He wants to go back Star? to the Mieville. Yeah, I mean, these are the two follow-ups to Perdido's Street Station. I'm surprised it hasn't been in audio before. These are older books. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure Paul has read all three of these. I, I have I have, I have, read all three of these. I, 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 my uh, appreciation for Mieville has slipped slightly ever since I read it. I mean, I thought it was burning hot, the best ever, when I first read them in, in Reflection. Eh, not so much. I guess I can see how the gears work and mm. maybe, maybe, maybe see the flaws a little too much. I'm not saying they're not bad and they're not worth listening to. They're not the greatest ever, which is what I probably thought of when I when I finished mm. Iron Council. But but what if not, you're just old and jaded now? I, I, uh. no, well, well, there's <laughs> that too. I mean, I, I might be I might be more jaded now. It's true, Johnny. Uh, it says reviewer someone. I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I could have found it in my email. Someone downloaded them. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, I mean these are pretty famous uh, books. Yeah, I I had heard of them. I I was surprised they were not. I didn't know they were a series though. Well, they're, they're they're all set in the same world, but they're not they're not a strict series. Okay. Yeah, I think the first one was a standalone. Then it was a big hit, and then he just followed it up. What's the first one called? Perdido Street Station. Right, okay. Well, it's interesting that there's a linguist in the second one, The Scar, because I love Embassy Town, which is kind of about a linguist. Yeah, and their Embassy Town, when I read that, that's when I started really getting disenchanted a bit with Mabel, which I wanted to like that more than I actually did. <laughs> but but the, but the linguist part, yeah, you're right. It's like, like I'm going to use that idea again and just put, put her on an alien planet. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be awesome. I thought it was awesome. It was. It was Maybe you have to really separate out the awesome by a few years. <laughs> I mean, I, I read the beginning of Perdido, and it was kind of like Gravity's Rainbow. Like, there's a really deep uh, description of things, and but I, I kind of got skeeved out by the uh, there's like a bug woman that has sex with a human man. And I was like, uh, maybe I'll come back to this later. Why don't we move to the next category? I want to sing the sing the opening for it. Is this the real life, or is it just dot dot dot? Is it the just? Smoke 
fantasy. Yeah, we have so many oh, fantasy. Just titles. fantasy. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting it. Uh-huh. <laughs> dot 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 dot. I, I think I owe you ten dollars now. Yeah. <laughs> dot dot dot. The Slow Regard of Silent Things, uh, a novella by Patrick Rothfuss, three and a half hours, read by Patrick Rothfuss. I I think I heard uh, him talking about this book on some podcast. Yeah, and we've already actually posted the review to SFF Audio. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do we think of Patrick Rothfuss? I've not read any of his stuff. But oh, I really think... enjoy him. Yeah, I've read yeah. the first two novels. Still waiting for that third one. Still waiting for that third one, yeah. Yeah. What's the first one called? Name of the Wind. Name. The Name of the Wind, okay. Someone described his prose as like Dark Chocolate on the Geek's Guide yeah. podcast. Dark Chocolate? Yeah. Dark Chocolate. Like, in which way? I guess it's like some, uh, some series. You can really... I don't know, enjoy it. He says he does a lot of rewrites. He really uh, tries to make every word perfect and mix together perfectly. He does, he he goes the flow he goes the full flow bear, yeah. Flow bear? Yeah. Gustav Flaubert, when I was reading him in college and he was talking about like how Flaubert spent years on books and trying to make hmm. every sentence perfectly to make it all work harmoniously to the mouth and to the ear. And it's like, mm. you know, Roth, Roth's, uh work ethic reminds me of Flaubert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Delaney says that too. He writes every line like 20 different ways down a page and then he picks the best one. Yeah. Wow. No, yeah, it's no wonder Jenny, I waited for the third book for so long, but there you are. And it's really not been that long. I just... um I was surprised, I think, that I liked the first one, because I don't tend to read epic fantasy, but even I enjoyed it, so there you go. <laughs> so this this novella is just kind of um, a longer story of one of the characters in the novels that we've already seen, Ari. Um, so it would be, like, if you're really into his novels, it's probably best for you. You think if you haven't <laughs> read anything else, you can get into this, because it's so short? I I'm not sure I'd start there. No, I yeah. I don't think so, it'll make sense. I think the author was saying don't don't read this book first. Yeah, it's right. a fan novel. Sure would like, but that that made me want to read something by him because just that's not usually what I hear from authors. Is oh my book's great and you can start anywhere, no matter what part of the series it's in. I, it, it's funny because I almost think that he wanted to know more about her. You know, mm-hmm. after putting her in the novel, he wanted more of her story to be told. So um, isn't this the character? Isn't this the girl that lives on the rooftops? Am I, I remembering so. right? I think so. I'd have to. I thought it was like yeah. on the ground, like in the sewer. Yeah, no, but, but who Ari is. Yeah. I think uh, it's been a while since I've read the books. There aren't a lot of female characters. It's Ari and Dina, right? And this isn't Dina, so. It's got a great title. Yeah. That's what I would say. It's got a great title. It uh, makes me want to read Rothfuss by... The fact no, that he said no, 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 she doesn't work on the rooftop. She, she's the one that lives underneath the university. Yeah, who does he talk to on the rooftops? Oh crap! <laughs> <laughs> you remember that though, don't you? Yeah. Darn. I thought it was the same one, but I just must no, be remembering wrong. Um. Let's keep going, because I, I, I see some really cool stuff ahead, and I, I don't want to run out of time. Yeah, okay, next we have Heraclix and Pomp, a novel of the fabricated and the fae by Forrest Aguirre, narrated by Brandon Massey. Um, it's through Audible we, Studios, but we heard about it through Mark Teppo, so I'm not sure how that came about exactly. But 
I, how are we going to deal with two reviewers? Well, Bryce so, has his own blog, so... Oh, yeah. okay. I've, I've been thinking, though, one of these days I'm going to write a joint review. Huh. I have two people's opinions, and I'm going to merge them together, but I haven't... That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder, you get like a battle of the reviews, mm-hmm. right? Positive and negative, or positive and sort of positive. Well, and both people that wanted to review this know the author in Goodreads. Mm. So, uh, let me read the description. Heraclix was dead and Pomp was immortal. That was before Heraclix's reanimation, along with the sewn-together pieces and parts of many other dead people, and Pomp's near murder at the hands of an evil necromancer. As they travel from Vienna to Prague to Istanbul and back again, with a side trip to hell, they struggle to understand who and what they are. Heraclix seeks to know the life he had before his death and rebirth, and Pomp wrestles with the language and meaning of mortality. As they journey across a land rife with revolution and unrest, they discover that the evil necromancer they thought dead might not be so dead after all. In fact, he might be making a pact to ensure his own immortality. Hmm. Sounds like it's it's set in a. I'm just looking at the uh, the place names. It sounds like it's like Ottoman Empire stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be interesting to hear about. Actually, I have an email from Terp Kristen with a review, so that'll oh. that'll go up pretty fast. Um, this next one is dead but not forgotten. A, a collection of Suki Stacko stories written by other authors mm-hmm. than Charlene Harris. That tells you how popular this series is, huh? Is that she she can't write enough on her own. She writes a lot. She can't write enough on her own. She she brings in other people to write Suki Stacko so, uh, stories. I, I I would guess that it has something to do with the show being so popular. Right, yeah. Yeah. just I think it just wrapped up or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's done. Yeah. I can't even remember the ending, but um I really liked the book, first book of the series. I did not know it was a series when I read it because it was so long ago, but um, I thought she was a really good writer at the time. Wow. I I I I think the 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 show slides off in quality as it goes on, but the, 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 and the novels are be- novels are better. I haven't read the novels. I've seen some of the show because I don't read a ton of urban fantasy. Urban fantasy. I, is actually I one think of my the show's pretty pretty great. I mean the the I don't remember the ending for some reason, but um. <laughs> That aside, I think it's it's uh it it was very um it took its subject incredibly seriously, uh, which is uh, funny because it's kind of a comedy as well. But it, just thinking about like what it would be, it's basically a metaphor for homosexuality, right? It's all these vampires coming out of the closet, right? And uh and what that means to society, and there's race in there as well, and it's. It, it's done very metaphorically with lots of blood and lots of jokes and lots of sort of uh, romance drama in there. But uh, with HBO, you know, you get that they don't they they can do anything on screen and nobody's going to be able to stop them. And that would make you see, you know, the end of an episode makes you want to watch the next one because something incredible would happen. And uh, but I, I just thought that the first book was it was just a really good read. Like it's like, hey. This is a interesting setup, and all the stuff that's in there, you know, all the characters who are in there later get, you know, more stuff going on in the, in the show. So, yeah, and to uh, be fair, like, it's not really urban; it's contemporary, but it's small town fantasy, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I kind of like that. That twist. Well, she, yeah. No, she, 
it, she really she makes some rules like all good you know people who are thinking about what vampires she, she picks her rules crosses don't work but you have to be invited in you know um vampire blood can do this but i can't do that right and uh she follows her own rules and uh, the show did that as well which i think yeah. is why i, I, I appreciate I, appreciate that when the rules don't get twisted and burned and ignored less than exactly some, some series which i will not name and and it, it, it in the later seasons they had you know sort of a metaphor for aids as well and um i thought it was really uh, you know it was really well done it's light entertainment it's television it's not like uh you have to bring your your heavy thinking brain to it but um very fun and funny and the, i felt the book was was like that with a little more menace at least the first book, because that's the only one I read. But yeah, well, I um, watched the show like the first couple seasons, but I felt like it kind of jumped the shark and just kind of did anything to be shocking. And then I, I got tired of it. Yeah, a lot of people thought, thought that, but not me. I enjoyed <laughs> okay. it all the way through. I, although I cannot remember the ending, maybe I was traumatized. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's uh, move on. The Shadow of the Ancients. By Michael Page. I've not heard of this author, have I? Well, I so. Michael Page is Michael Page is the narrator. Oh, yeah, they're well, in the wrong order. Okay, Sorry. so who's the author or authors? Pierre Grimbert and Matt Ross is the translator. Oh. And Michael Page is Michael Page is the uh, is the audiobook narrator. What language are we translating from French. here? French. I I because because okay. this looked interesting, so I decided to go to the Google's. Apparently, this is actually. Third in a series, actually. Oh, really? Yes. The Secret of G series. The first book being oh. Six Heirs, the second one being the or- next one being The Orphan's Promise, and now you have this one. So this one should have been in red. For Romaine's Deep Tower, from Romaine's Deep Tower to the Golden Temple in Ithare, from the Murky Mountains to the Warrior's Vale, the heirs continue their desperate quest. Yeah, I'll continue. To, whose outcome will decide the fate of the upper kingdoms. Will they have to recklessly desecrate one of the gods' most jealously guarded secrets? Every discovery condemns them. Armies gather. Conspirators reveal themselves. Schemes are unveiled. The heir's time is short. Unraveling the mysteries of Noel and the emissaries will bring the heirs behind the curtain, deep into the eastern kingdoms. Only there, if they can survive the most dangerous of the guardians, will they find what really hides in the shadow of the ancients. Really don't know what's going on, yeah. but it sounds like Lord of the Rings, except with heirs uh, instead of hobbits. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's like I, I think it might be cool. Uh, well, to, well, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read you the description from the first book. The known world is a sprawling region ruled by mortals, protected by gods, implied by magicians and warriors, merchants and beggars, royals and scoundrels. Here, those with the gift of the Urjak share a psychic bond with animals. A far-reaching fraternity unites criminals of every persuasion in the vast army of villainy. Upon the mm-hmm. mighty river Alt, the dead will one day sail, beach seeking vengeance on the enemies of their descendants. Mm. And then there's apparently uh, people who are going to stop this, mm. and which I guess are the people in this book. So, winner of the Prix Ozone and Prix Julia Berlanger prizes. I guess those are French literary prizes. Yeah. So. There you have it. I, I, that's cool that there, because my understanding of that Russian was that big Russian uh, science fiction novel is really cool. The Metro 2033 or was it, what was the other one? 
maybe that's not one, but just seeing fantasy and science fiction done from uh, other point of view. Yeah. yeah, just gets you know th- they read Robert Jordan as well, right? But but uh, then they went and did their own thing. They they've got their own domestic market now, getting it translated into English. Yeah, you're getting it something else. Yeah, Pierre Pavel had a couple of his novels from France translated to English. They were basically musketeers with dragons. They weren't mm. they weren't bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were very true and authentic to the spirit of you know Three Musketeers because well. <laughs> he's he's immersed into that stuff being from France, so mm-hmm. so I like them and not, but apparently not enough people did, so they didn't translate anything past the first two. There's apparently more, but they never got translated, much to my shame. Mm. I can't read French. Mm. I hear they have some good comics. The French, yeah. Okay, M- Mobius and uh, um, the other guy that worked on Fifth Element. Yeah, he's Mobius is an artist though. Is he write as well? I don't know. He writes sometimes. Does he? Yeah. Okay. Um, Visitors by Orson Scott Card, uh, and read by Kirby Hayborn. No, I can't. I can't tell what's going on. Jenny, you have to explain it to me. What is this? Jenny. Jenny. Uh-oh. Oh, hello. Jenny Sorry. Oh, there she I'm is. Muted. Um. Yeah, it's read Kirby by three people. Kirby Hayborn, Emily Rankin, Stefan Rudnicki. I see. Okay. All right. Um, and it's for grades seven to nine. I love how they can figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to say this, but we're not going to have this. Um, and it's a uh, what category are we? We're, we're in the fantasy section, right? So, um, from the internationally best-selling author of Ender's Games comes the riveting finale. Hey, this is another series one of a uh, the story of Rig, a teenager who possesses a secret talent that allows him to see the paths of people's pasts. Wow, the paths, paths of people's paths. Past. Yeah, that's tongue twister. From the international, wait, that's the same one. <laughs> it's repeating itself. In Pathfinder, Rig joined forces with another teen whose special talents on a quest to find Rig's sister and discover the true depth of the significance of their powers. Then Rig's story continued in ruins, as as he was tasked to decipher the paths, the past before the arrival of the destructive force with deadly intentions. Now, in Visitors, Rig's journey comes to an epic, and explosive conclusion as everything has been building up, finally comes to pass. And Rig is forced to put his powers to the test in order to save the world and end the war once and for all. So it's part of his no, Yeah, you know, I'm finding that these um, descriptions, like, they drive me away from the books because they're trying to avoid spoilers so much that it's all adjectives. At least the last couple, anyways. Yeah. This isn't a game tie-in, is it? Pathfinder? Oh, uh, no. Yep. Pathfinder is, is, uh, that's a Dungeons and Dragons one, right? Yes, it's Dungeons and Dragons World. Paul should know all about that. Yeah, 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 I actually just finished writing a review of a novel set in the Pathfinder universe yesterday, so yeah, so it's been on my mind recently. Hmm. Definitely a different universe. Yeah, it's, it's, so what's the story on the difference between Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder? Okay, and why I, did Pathfinder I, pop up? I, I can, I could spend half an hour on it, but I'll give you the short, short, short version. Uh, once upon a time, there was a version of Dungeons and Dragons called 3.5, which mm-hmm. was a very, which was basically an update on 3. Then mm-hmm. D&D decided to go to 4.0, which was a radical reboot, and lots of people said, the heck with that, we like 3.5 a lot, and some of those people, because they've been putting out modules for 
3.5 decided, well, well, we'll make a game based off of 3.5, and that's how Pathfinder came to be. So it's basically mm-hmm. a descent branch off of 3.5. And just It was a uh, heresy within the church. And, kind of, uh, sort of. And now Pathfinder is arguably as big as D&D. Yeah, not bigger. that's what I was, I was understanding. Yeah. It's a fork, like in coding. Yes, it's a, it, that's a very good example, Tim, because the jump from three to four, three point five to four was a radical shift. So they they look very different, and now five in some ways looks a little bit more like three did in some ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but Path, Pathfinder has definitely got currently got a dominant position. D&D has the name, but Pathfinder has the bodies at the at the local gaming store. I always see Pathfinder, not D&D, being played. That's interesting that so many people switched over. So um, I'm just going to read the titles of books that are in the middle of series. So we at least recognize that they're coming out, but we don't need to spend time on them. We've talked about them before. Um, We have The Void, which is the third book in Witching Savannah by J.D. Horn. Um, The Glass Magician, which is the second in the Paper Magician trilogy by Charlie N. Holmberg. The Fatal Tree, which is number five in Bright Empires by Stephen R. Lawhood. Um, Sky Pirates, number three in The Chronicles of Light and Shadow by Liesl Schwartz. I actually have a great fondness for those, so I'll read that. <laughs> Into oh. Darkness, which is Night Prowler number six by J.T. Geisinger. Blood of Gods, Breaking World number three by David Doglish. And Scarlet Tides, which is the second of the Moontide Quartet by David Hare. And last but not least in fantasy, I'm just scrolling all the way down. Um, the 11th book in the Vampire Chronicles, Prince Lestat by Anne Rice. Wow. So there's a lot of, you know, great books coming out if you're into those series and trilogies. I keep meaning mm. to read the Moon, t- meaning reading, uh, the Moontide book. I have the first one on my Kindle. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Well, now just there's even books. more. Yeah, too many books, too little time. That one's Maj- Mage's Blood? Is yeah. Right? Yeah, because I have that sitting here to send to one of our reviewers. How long is so, that audio book? Oh, my gosh, it's 22 discs. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, I'll pass. <laughs> crazy. I'll pass. Is that you? They sent you a 22-disc audio book in the mail? Oh, well, someone wants it. Rob yeah, but wants you, it. You can't rip that. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to mail it. I'm going to mail it. You're going to mail that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this one of Bone and Thunder because that's not a new series. Oh, they, if it is a series, it's it, the first it, series, yes. not in school of something. It doesn't list itself as a series. So yeah, the, yeah. the actual author is Chris Evans. Todd Haverson yes. must be the because uh, I've read yeah. Chris Evans before, this, but this is something new from him. Mm-hmm. So it came out middle of October, and the summary says Apocalypse Now meets The Lord of the Rings. See, I I can understand that sort of. <laughs> that's a good description. In a bold new fantasy from the acclaimed author of the Iron Elves trilogy, filled with, quote, heroic action that keeps fans coming back, from Publishers Weekly, uh, channeling the turbulent period of the Vietnam War and its ruthless pitting ideologies, a pitting of ideology, cultures, generations, and races against each other, military historian and acclaimed fantasy writer Chris Evans takes a daring new approach to a traditional world of sword and sorcery by thrusting it into a maelstrom of racial animus Drug, drug use, rebellion, and a growing war that seems at once unwinnable and with no end in sight. In this thrilling epic, right and wrong, country and honor, freedom and sacrifice are all put to the ultimate test in the heart of a dark, bloody, otherworldly jungle. In this strange new deep 
a new world deep among the shadows under a triple canopy jungle and plagued by dangers real and imagined. Soldiers strive to fulfill a mission they don't understand and are ill-equipped to carry out. And high above them, the heavy rush of wings slashing through the humid air herald a coming wave of death and destruction and just possibly salvation. So I, I think that's it sounds it sounds interesting. It, it, yeah, Vietnam War take on fantasy warfare, and, th- and those Russian wings, yeah. those are dragons. There's yeah, they, that's what I've got. Yeah, yeah, they, you, they, people ride dragons in, in, in not Hueys. Yeah, instead Maybe of Hueys. dragon named Huey. <laughs> but yeah, I know it sounds good. I haven't bought, it, I haven't purchased it yet, but I, I, I've, i liked the, I like the Iron Elves novels, so I probably will pick this up at some point and, uh, and read it because. Do we know how long this is? Is it epic length? It oh, says epic. Simon. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. It is uh, four ninety six pages. Yeah. Oh, so it's chunky. So it's chunky. Bad fantasy. Bad fantasy. Uh, right. Somebody needs to read Shaman Healer Heretic. I'll read it. I cool. say shaman though. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, say it's shaman, the first I say book. Shaman. <laughs> it's the first book in the Olivia Lawson Techno Shaman series by M. Terry Green. Uh, this is a self, self-published title, and the author contacted us. Um, it's narrated by Celia Aurora de Blas. Even for a techno-shaman, a kachina in the bedroom isn't exactly part of the drill. When Olivia Lawson wakes to find one towering over her, she panics. A Hopi god visiting the real world isn't just wrong, it's impossible. Or is it? Soon, Olivia learns that the kachina is the least of her worries. As she struggles to save her clients, clashes with other shamans, and fends off the attacks of real-world vigilantes, Olivia finds herself in the destructive path of malevolent ancient force intent on leaving the spiritual realm to conquer this one. I say vi- Sounds urban. I say vigilante. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And maybe it's Kachina. <laughs> I don't know. All these words. Hopi, Hopis are Native Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know tons about them. I read those Joe Leaphorn books. Do you remember those? The who's the who's the author of that? I don't know. Bunch of ones set on a reservation reserve. What do you call it down there? Reservation. 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 Wait, they're called reserves up here. Um, and uh, there was a bunch of and there was a book like Skinwalkers and they're like mysteries set on uh on the reser- reservations. Um. I know there's a comic called Scalped, which is like a... Yeah, I got the first one of that. I didn't... uh, It didn't pull me in like everybody else was pulled in by it. It was a bit grim. (laughs) I'm not not usually um, upset by things that are a bit grim, but it was a bit grim. I'm saying something. Yeah. Uh, Maybe maybe it's not for me. I don't know. Isn't that like noir? Uh, Well, it wasn't... mm, Yeah, it was... I mean, I didn't... I didn't go on with it, so I can't say, but it was, it was pretty hardcore, whatever it was. Now, this is, this is the stuff I wanted to do. The category called No Escape from Reality. (laughs) Um, and I'm, I'm very cool with this. The Snowden Files, the inside story of the world's most wanted man by Luke Harding, read by Nicholas Guy Smith, probably. Uh, 10 hours, 11 minutes, and, uh, the besi- behind the scenes and definitive account of Edward Snowden, the extraordinary NSA whistleblower behind the biggest blah, 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 blah. Um, so he's living in a bungalow with his girlfriend in Honolulu. I guess we all know this story, right? Yeah. 
Uh, but I still, I'd be fascinated to read this, uh, assuming that it's a good uh, mini biography or, or mini histor- history of what's going on there. Yeah, one of uh, our reviewers already listened to it. Um, she's mm-hmm. not the, you know, she's another reviewer, but mm-hmm. um, I guess the part of it that I didn't know a lot about is who Snowden is politically and how, how very right wing he is. Mm-hmm. Um, almost to the Tea Party kind of level, and so um, I guess it put things in a different perspective for me than I really realized before. So it was but pretty lefty wishy washy. Yeah. Well, not really wishy washy as much as um, I don't know. I guess I thought his motives were different than they seemed after reading her review of the book. He's a he's. I was going to say tea drinking libertarian, but um, maybe tea is not the right word. He's a not an Ayn Rand drinking libertarian, but he's he's some sort of uh, radical liber, libertarian, at least in some ways. Yeah, and I guess this book just brings that more into focus. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And he was a government worker. Does that make sense? Yeah, he was always mm-hmm. a contractor for. Uh... Well, yeah, but if you if you read more, he actually worked. You know, he was a CIA agent. He was a spy. Well. He, <laughs> totally he was. He was. Yeah, he was. Definitely all up in the business of all of that stuff. I mean, the government regularly hires people and calls them one thing so that they can always yeah. claim that they didn't know anything about it or whatever. But, yeah, it's really clear when you watch interviews with him what he was really mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Um, this next book I've read and is excellent. Yes, so have I. So, so good. Um, I, I guess they're re-releasing it. Is that why? I don't know if it's uh, been audio before. Maybe it has. Uh, it has, because that's how I, I oh, heard oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, but I don't remember if it was Michael Pritchard. I, I may have even reviewed it. I don't remember. Yeah, but, it seemed uh, familiar, but then it was on that list as being new. I was very confused. It's an amazing book. I want to read the description. Just Do you want so to tell us what the title is, too? Oh, <laughs> yes. It's called Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed by Jared Diamond. Um, now, Jared Diamond is... Uh, I think I've read all of his books now, mm-hmm. uh, at least the ones that are actually books. Um, and he's written some papers and stuff that, you know, academic papers. But his his actual books um, are they're just so interesting. And um, so this one is it looks at how, yeah, societies or cultures or civilizations um, ebb and flow, especially in extreme environments. Um, and why they do that, uh, trying to piece together, you know, exactly why a culture or population will disappear or what will happen to it. And it's so relevant to thinking about, you know, what, what we're doing to our planet. I, I, I'm not somebody who goes around, you know, waving the environmental flag all the time. Um, mostly because I think that, you know, a lot of it's, theater i mean it should be we should be concentrating on it. but basically if you just read this book and you say huh let's just like um extrapolate that out a little bit instead of just greenland for for say or the islands of um uh rapa nui right um that's easter island uh, if we just like think a little bigger oh yeah we're on a on an island as well and that island has no <laughs> No nearby other islands that we can escape to. So in this book, 
Well, I'll just read the description then uh, we can talk about it more if we want to. Environmental damage, climate change, globalization, rapid population growth, and unwise political choices were all factors in the demise of societies around the world. But some found solutions and persisted. As in Guns, Germs, and Steel, that's his first book, I think, or maybe not, his big book, anyways. Diamond traces the fundamental pattern of catastrophe and weaves an all-encompassing global thesis through a series of fascinating historical cultural narratives. Collapse moves from Polynesian cultures on Easter Island to the flourishing American civilizations of the Anasazi and the Maya, and finally to the doomed Viking colony of Greenland. Uh, similar problems face us today and have already brought disasters to Rwanda and Haiti, even as China and Australia are trying to cope in innovative ways. Despite our own society's apparent inexhaustible wealth and unrivaled political power, ominous warning signs have begun to emerge even in ecologically robust areas like Montana. Brilliant, illuminating, intensely, immensely absorbing collapse is destined to take its place. It's one of the essential books of our time raising the urgent question, how can our world best avoid committing ecological suicide? So, uh, yeah, I can remember. Uh, anybody else here read this? Yep. I, I, oh, read it, this? I, I read it. I didn't listen to it. This is the third book of of Diamonds I've read. I read The Third Chimpanzee. I read Gun, 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 uh, Gun Germs and Steel, and then I read this. Yeah, this, it's, I mean, just, just watching how, Things have changed in the last few years. It's even more relevant now than ever mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with the indications of how much more Greenland's melting and Antarctica is melting and the the wild weather patterns. The polar the polar vortex is a sign of eco, ecological and environmental change, not not the reverse. And it's just like yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's startlingly prescient. Well, what's interesting is. It's not really a prediction. It's looking at history, but, but, but it's also not even so much about about how we can damage the ecosystem because, uh, or sorry, the the climate. Right? It's not about the climate per se. It's just saying that climate changes do happen, and when they do, that can cause problems for civilizations. Obviously, that don't react but, to them, right? Or like yeah. deforestation on Rapanui. Deforestation, totally. I mean, what went on on Easter Island? I mean, if if there was video cameras to record that, that would be like it'd be like a slow motion uh, holocaust for hundreds of years. Just horrible things that people were doing to each other there. I think I figured out what the issue is with the recording. What's that? The one from 2005 that I found in Audible is an abridged version. Oh, oh. really? Yeah, really? and it's a different different reader. Uh, so that one was only nine and a half hours, read by Christopher Murney, and this one is 27 and a half hours. <laughs> you know, this is a book, I'm not much on rereading, but this is a book I would I would probably want to reread. Especially yeah. if you only got the abridged one before. Yeah. I, I can't imagine I did, but I now I want to think about getting, I'm going to check that out and see if I did hear the abridged version. Yeah, and of course I included that because it ties so well into our dystopian books we're always talking about. Totally. Totally. Present day dystopia, John Paul Fox. The Snowden book before. Yeah. Um, so you gonna read this, Jenny? Oh, maybe. I kind of prefer my dystopia in fiction, <laughs> but. It's <laughs> uh, well, too real. Well, even I just finished Station Eleven, and it's about ninety-nine um, percent of the world population dying from 
a virus very similar to Ebola. <laughs> mm. It was almost too realistic. Paul, I want I want you to do you remember the part about um the Vikings in Greenland? Yes, and yes, how they settled it during the medieval warm period and then as as temperatures got colder the Vikings didn't adapt to the changes by taking uh the habits of the local Inuit. They just kept farming, kept trying to do what they were doing and died out because yeah. it just got too cold. They they stubbornly didn't adapt and and react to the climate around them. They just kept doing what they were doing and until it killed them. Which yeah, Jared's pointing at us as the same sort of thing. Keep burning all the fossil fuels, keep not keep ignoring what's happening to the climate. Yeah. Well one yeah, he doesn't write it like it's not like a diatribe. It's just so obvious no. to us. No, it's no, like, no. Oh my god, this is exactly like this is this, you know, yeah, we'll just keep going down this path. Everything'll be okay. It'll work itself out. And it's like, no, 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 no. We've seen this path before. This is why history is so important is, is figuring this, that out. Like that story of the, of the Vikings in Greenland is like, okay, this, you know, this is what happens this year. And okay. And that's bad. And then next year, oh shit. And, well, that's okay. Maybe I'll come back. Nope. Just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And the drought in California comes to mind. It's just how California's had become less and less and less wet and people are just, what they're uh, yeah. doing. Well, I mean, it was always dry, right? The thing no. is, is it's not like no, because it was it it was always dry. They moved the river down there. No, no, no. Like, what, what, back back back. Uh, uh, Cadillac Desert's an excellent book about this, by the way. When uh, when most of the infrastructure for the Southern California water was built, it was during a relatively wet period in Southern Californian history, much wetter hmm. much wetter than today, and so the perceived capacity of how much water they were going to get was based on those figures. And now mm. now as we regress towards a more drier state, it's like in California's burgeoning population, there's not enough water to go around because they never expected it to be this dry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People are still moving there. People are still moving it. I moved out of there. For, oh. Part of the reason was because I couldn't stand the climate. I guess mm. the difference, though, is, you know, I just finished reading a book called Icelanders in the Viking Age, mm-hmm. um, just a nonfiction book. And I'm not sure they all just stayed there until they died. They just relocated once they realized well, they were starving. Iceland's a different a different case, though. Well, but I mean, they moved from Iceland to Greenland, and then Greenland proved, you know, kind of insurmountable, so they moved back to Iceland. Yeah, Some of them well, did. Others, yeah, well, I'm sure some of them died, but not all. And we also, I mean, we don't have as much evidence for it, but, you know, they were in North America, too, and they weren't just camping. Right? Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. they were farming the land, and it didn't work out. Because um, it got too cold and the farms failed, yeah. Yeah. Um. So it's it's very, I mean, but I think the the, the major, I mean, if you, if you just, if you think of, of what went on in Rapa Nui for so long for it was just like it 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 was like religious war um competition for trees to make you know stuff uh overpopulation a collapse of the fisheries it's it was just horrible endlessly horrible there's a movie and, have you there's, there's it's a fictional oh, yeah. movie have you seen the movie yeah, I saw that. yeah. yeah. 
it was pretty horrible as well. It was a great movie. I mean, it no, kinda, I mean it was like a horror, like it was horrific what happened. It was a great movie. It kind of hits over the head just how yeah. desperate things got. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not pleasant, but it's a harsh truth we should learn. Um, so we're running out of time. So let's let's talk about these ending books because I I, I want to co- talk about a couple new releases as well. Sure. Uh, the category is very very frightening. Uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft, read by Jim Roberts. And uh, we've got a review for it. Um, this Dream Quest series, I know very little about other than it starts with Randolph Carter, who we did a podcast on, uh, The Statement of Randolph Carter. And um, I think this is related to um, a couple other, not exactly series, but sort of sub subset of Lovecraft stories. Um, so it's the Dreamlands, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Dreamlands sequence, or whatever it's called. Uh, the Vines by Jeff Cumming. Uh, Marissa's going to do the review for us, read by Christopher Rice. No, it's opposite of that. Sorry. Oh. oh. I'm sorry. Uh, Brilliance Audio has a new way they're sending out their lists, and I just copied and pasted, and I didn't realize what was happening. So. Okay. Well, Jeff Cummings does sound like a narrator I've heard of before. <laughs> Well, somebody else read this for me. The Vines or the next one? Yes, The Vines, please. Sure. The Dark History of Spring House, a beautifully restored plantation mansion on the outskirts of New Orleans, has long been forgotten. But something sinister looks beneath, lurks beneath the soil of the old estate. After Eris and current owner Kaylin Chasen is witness to her husband's stunning betrayal at her birthday party, she tries to take her own life in the mansion's cherished gazebo. Instead, the blood she spills awakens dark forces in the ground below. Chaos ensues, and by morning, her husband has vanished without a trace, and his mistress has gone mad. Nova, mm. daughter of Springhouse's groundkeeper, has always suspected that something malevolent haunts the old place. In the aftermath of the birthday party, she enlists Caitlin's estranged best friend, Blake, to help her get to the bottom of it. The pair soon realizes that the vengeance enacted by the sinister and unworthy force comes at a terrible price. Mm. So I think it should be pointed out that Christopher Rice is the son of Anne. Oh, not surprised, given that description. And Mm. more importantly, he has once been named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, one of them. So so is this autobiographical, exactly? (laughs) (laughs) Autobiographical horror fiction? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to have Anne Rice as my mom. I don't know. I don't think I would. I'd like to read that biography. <laughs> Maybe Stephen King as your dad wouldn't be that great either. Well, Joe, Joe Hill seems to be doing well. Yeah, bedtime stories might be scary, yeah. though. I'm posting so, a link to his um, photo gallery so you can be the judge. <laughs> why, do, why does an author have a photo gallery? Well, I guess I guess they're supposed to have it for the back of their book. Okay, but. well, he likes to cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> That's clear. Okay. Not that's surprising. Last, <laughs> Not last surprising, though. No. Stars a Canadian harpoonist named Ned Land. I wonder what that could be. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. I've never read this book, you know. What? Uh, Seriously? I, I know all I... about it. I've not read it, never read it, never read it. Jesse. Read by Jim <laughs> Kilvaney. Jesse. Well... I don't know. I mean, I haven't read everything yet. True. But uh, I've read uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Okay, good. I I enjoyed that. Um, 
It's a comedy, as far as I can tell, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, it's not, it's an adventure comedy. Um, you guys were, must have read it, Tam. Did you read it? I've seen the movie. I don't remember it being funny. I, yeah, the movie wasn't funny. I read the book. Like, I think I think it's it's the humor of the characters' names and such like that. It's like, um, but that but again, I have not read it, so um, I kind of want to read it, uh, but I also kind of don't want to read it. I don't know. So I, I'm gonna have to work up some interest in in reading it. Let's uh, let's talk about a couple of new releases. Okay. Uh, one uh, is a. Uh, New version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Well, not a new version. An audio drama version. It's two hours, 47 minutes long. I listened to the sample this morning, and uh, it sounds really interesting. They've put the the time period into the 1950s. Yeah, I see that. And they've set it um, uh, in sort of the atomic era. So instead of the island being, you know, an island only of, of uh, surgical experiments, which I have read this book, by the way, and we, we have done podcasts on it. Um, the uh, It's set in the atomic age. So I guess there's going to be mutation or something like that. Mutation it, as the uh, genesis for the creatures, maybe? I guess. I, I mean, it's not super clear from the description. Um, it just says, you know, half human, half animal. But it, it seems to hit the points uh, that the island of Dr. Moreau originally does. Um, but the audio drama sounds really good, and I, I don't recognize anybody who's in it. Neither do I. So, sounds good. Um, yeah, it's from Mandelo Publishing, and um, I, I'm interested. I, I wonder if uh, audio drama of a longer length like this, instead of you know like a half hour show, will um, will take off on on Audible because it's certainly possible. The 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 model of um, subscription model that everybody seems to like Audible for, you know that, that there isn't a subscription to um, to ebooks, right? Nobody has a Amazon Kindle subscription. Kind of, sort of, there is, but you can't keep them. It's like Kindle Unlimited. Fucking bullshit, man. Yeah, 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 In any yeah, case, I know it is bullshit. You can't yeah, keep them. Besides that bullshit. The audible, you know, audiobooks are not treated that way, and so the the length really matters. But people are going to put a credit in; they want to, you know, not have a two hour uh, audiobook. Right, if they want to waste it, so to speak. Yeah. Right, but if if you've got the added value of a long audio drama instead of you know half hour audio drama, which is almost really the only conventional length that people. I mean, sometimes there's forty five minute ones. BBC does longer ones, but I, I think that, that this might be very interesting, and I, I, I would totally listen to this if it was available to us for review. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. Yes. Hint. Um. Uh, John Scalzi has serialized both on Kindle and Audible. Hmm. One of his books. Okay. Um. Also, uh, I sent you guys a link to the Robert Sheckley new releases. Now, a bunch of new Sheckleys are showing up um, in almost yeah, novel length or slightly slightly close to novel length. Um, the one I noticed first is The Journey of the Joneses, which is a, um older uh, science fiction novel, a picturesque journey through an imagined future. And uh, I'm a big fan of Sheckley. Um, the Game of X 
read by Oliver Wyman, who we've had on the podcast and is an excellent narrator. Um, that sounds like it, it would totally be up my alley. Four, four hours, 20 minutes. Crompton Divided. I've not even heard of this book before by Sheckley. Five hours, 28 minutes. And then there's the three hunter slash victim, uh, or hunter, hunter victim, hunter prime and the tenth victim books. Um, and the original short story called the seventh victim is very interesting. Uh, anybody here read that? Sound familiar. Maybe I, let's see, I'm reading the description. Okay, yes, yeah, 21st century and the ugliness, ugliness of war no longer exists except on a very personal level. Nowadays, people like Marcello Poletti, Silla of Roman Sunsets, and Carolyn Mer- Meredith, lies beautiful blonde and backed by corporate sponsors and the Royal Bell Dancers, hunt, chase, and kill each other for sport and for the entertainment of the masses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah, this is like... There was a movie called The Tenth Victim, and I guess he novelized that, but it was based on a short story called The... It was an Italian movie, partially set in New York, which is interesting. Yeah. That's a- but the original short story, The Seventh Victim, is public domain. It's up on the website. Um, and it's really fun. It, it, it's set in a world, I guess, kind of like the 1950s, fast-forwarded, where everybody works in office buildings and they have, you know, really boring jobs. And and uh, so the only way to make themselves a little more interested in stuff is... You, you sign up for what is essentially uh, a lottery of murder. You Anybody who, who sort of has a depressive personality, um, instead of, you know, going into a school and shooting everybody up <laughs> so that they can get shot by the police or, you know, what they do is instead they sign up for this mutual murder society uh, where they will be once a month, I think, randomly paired with someone else in the mutual murder society. And um, then they can hunt each other. And uh, you will be assigned a hunter card, right? So you know who you're hunting, but you don't know who, who you're being hunted by. Yeah. And um, the story is, you know, it's got the original setup for it. But uh, what's funny is the society around that is all sort of developed on um, the economy is developed around this. So people who who have no interest in participating, don't have to, but they will like sell bulletproof clothing or guns that are really tricky and fast. Or you can hire other people to like spy for you. So people who are not actually in the game can go and, you know, check and make sure that you're not going to get dropped on by somebody in the streets. And um, in the original short story, it's not so much about being, uh, televised but that's i think how it goes in these books so i i think that 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 sounds really it sounds interesting and different it's it's, um um, i can't quite remember what we talked about i was on a podcast we talked about something similar was it uh the hunger games no 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 (laughs) no 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 too dissimilar. No, no, no. Some, some some story. I can't remember. We did the read, read along and then we discussed it. I can't remember it offhand. Crap. Mm, the Running that, Man. No, no, it wasn't the Running Man. It was on a show with you. Similar guys. to that. So, similar to this. That. I, oh, crap. <laughs> Damn. Well. Yeah, I've lo- I've lost I've lost it. Oh well. Oh, and uh, I should also mention I'm listening to a, a fun book called The Story of English in 100 Words by David Crystal, read by David Crystal. And 
It's uh, about how 100 English words entered the English language, their history, their change over time, their etymology, and their their cousins in English. So where words connect with each other and it's, uh, you know, that's right up my alley. Very interesting. It's, it really gets into, you know, history of how English, English works and, um, you get all sorts of funny words like loaf and Twitter sphere and row and, um, cunt. Well, um, almost every kind of word you can think of that's kind of odd and strange. Uh, that just sounds like a typical English word and how it got in. All the four-letter words? All the four-letter words. Uh, he does briefly mention how the F word, he calls it, you know, became the F word in 1950s, but he doesn't go into its original origins, which are very old. I guess I was going to mention I read Ms. Marvel by uh, no, no Normal by uh, G. Willow Wilson. So it's kind of an Indian take. This young Indian girl gets these powers and set in Jersey City. Oh, the comic. Yeah, yeah it's a comic. Right. The first trade paperback is out and uh, seems to be selling a lot. Hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, it was pretty good. I, I haven't read her novel. Maybe I'm tempted now to read her novel. At least you should. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was younger, I kept confusing Captain Marvel with Miss Marvel. I, I'm well, now Miss Marvel became Captain Marvel. Yeah, I know, which is kind of confusing, but at least this Miss Marvel is completely <laughs> different than Carol Danvers, so it's like, oh, yeah, at least there's different. some parallax, yeah, parallax in my head. It's almost like, uh, Bended Like Beckham, if you've seen that movie. Yeah. It's like this Indian girl fighting with her parents and going to weddings and stuff. But she has superpowers too, instead of just playing soccer. Is she in, in the United States or? Jersey City. Yeah, yeah, Jersey City. Props. Because yeah. I'm from New Jersey. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Sorry. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hey! Ciao! Sorry.